the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Last November, in the thick of the pandemic, and in the thick of the political and cultural upheaval uh, in our world, National Public Radio's Scott Simon, who has my favorite voice, by the way, told the story of William Butler Yeats and his infamous poem, The Second Coming. Are you familiar with this poem? The Second Coming. Simon explained it, he set it up like this. Yeats wrote The Second Coming a hundred years ago, November 1920, when the world seemed on the verge. Perhaps like now, he says, perhaps like many years. The losses of the First World War were still overwhelming when millions more began to die in the waves of a flu pandemic. We know something about that right now. Which, by the way, infected Yates's wife and his daughter. Now they eventually recovered, but in all of this chaos, and over the century since its publication, perhaps no poem has been more invoked for vexing times. Here's the poem. William Butler Yeats, The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Surely, even though history divides us, we can feel the angst that must have driven Yeats to pen this poem. Our world right now, at least, feels like a falcon on the loose, right? Like it's lost itself, lost its center, and round and round we spin, higher and wider and farther away from the values that we, at least we like to pretend, used to keep us and the whole civilization grounded, right? So it feels like at this point, we're a day away 
from nuclear war or a crashing economy, a new terrorist threat, or some sinister takeover by Democrats, no, by Republicans, no, by aliens, and maybe they're all the same thing. <laughs> the center cannot hold, and we feel this with Yeats 100 years ago and with everyone else who's quoted this poem now through the century, because it always feels this way. Y'all, it's probably not out there. It's probably somewhere in here, right? The angst that human beings carry. Now, Yeats, as you can tell, as you can tell, as scholars debate this, by the way, um, Yeats has a very grim view of, about what's about to happen. Like as the falcon is flying wider and the center can't hold, what's, what does he say is going to happen? Well, he pictures this apocalyptic, rough beast, in his words, moving slowly toward us. And the beast's arrival, it seems, to Yates, is now going to bring more apocalyptic chaos than what we've experienced the past 2,000 years of war and death and natural disaster and so on. That's not the Christian vision, though, of time moving forward. Did you know that? As Christians, we have a different view. Thank you, William Butler Yeats, for raising the question and calling us to consider, yeah, what is going to happen after all of this craziness? Thank you. But in the Christian view of things, what if Yeats is wrong? What if we actually don't have to live with fear of tomorrow or fear of the end of the world? What if it's true? What if that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the world, rose bodily from the dead and therefore defeated death? And what if, what if he's coming again to make all things new? Like what if that song we learned when we were kids is actually true? He's got the whole world in his hands. What if that's true? This, my friends, is God's message to us today from the gospel reading. I bet you need it as much as I do. In Mark 13, Jesus' disciples are asking him about the end and about when and how God's kingdom will come. And here's how Jesus responds. Yes, he says, look, guys, there will be trouble ahead, but that trouble will be for those who follow my leadership, and that's the key. That trouble will be like the labor pains of a pregnant mom leading to life. This is our main idea today. We can move through the labor pains of human history to the new life of God's kingdom, only through the leadership of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Labor, life, leadership, that's where we're going. Will you join me now? Take your blue pew Bibles, if you find them in the pew in front of you. Um, Mark 13 is found on page 38 in the New Testament, so it's near the very, very back of the book. Page 38, Mark chapter 13. From labor pains to life, being led by the Lord. When you find Mark 13, look at verse 1 with me. Let's look at the labor pains of human history first. As Jesus came out of the temple, Mark writes, 
one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Okay, pause. For Jesus and his disciples, and for the Jewish people as a whole, the temple was this centerpiece, not only of their religious life, but of their cultural identity. Their, it was their world. It gave Jewish people this sense of security and power. Like we, This is our place in the world. And despite our troubled history, this temple reminds us that maybe brighter days are ahead, right? So what a surprise it must have been when, in now verse 2, Jesus responds to the disciple this way. Then Jesus asked that disciple, verse 2, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Whoa, 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 Jesus. So this takes the disciples by surprise, and they have a follow-up question. Verse 3, when Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, these are his close buddies, asked him privately, tell us, Jesus, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus' response probably only makes it worse. Because skip down to verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, verse 7, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Not only will the temple be destroyed, it's going to be bigger than a local thing and verse 8, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. In this moment, imagine how the disciples must have heard Jesus' response. Like, think of someone in the months before the Twin Towers were destroyed by terrorists. Imagine someone coming to you and telling you that these magnificent architectural testaments of American power and greatness would be utterly leveled in the space of hours. Picture that. What would you think? How would you respond? How would you make sense of that? This must be how the disciples are hearing Jesus's words. Yeah, that big temple, it's coming down. In fact, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, natural disasters. And they're thinking, how in the world is this going to happen? What are you talking about? What's coming for us? What rough beast is moving towards us? Okay, let me do a little excursus here as we're reading this text. Because if you're like me, when you, in the course of reading the Bible at home or something, you get to a verse like this and you hear Jesus start talking about natural disasters and wars and what well, pretty much sounds like today, where it could have sounded like 100 years ago or 100 years before that or 100 years. And here's what you need to know. Jesus' answer to his disciples, when he starts talking about this apocalyptic damage and destruction, Jesus' answer is filled with images of chaos that his disciples would have been familiar with from their reading of what's called apocalyptic literature. So Jesus and Mark, the gospel writer, is doing something very particular in a literary way. In other words, uh, in apocalyptic literature in the ancient world, the writer would use figurative language, not literal language, figurative language to evoke a big 
response from the reader. So Jesus is using these like tropes from apocalyptic literature. In other words, what I'm saying is Jesus is not in Mark 13 and the other parts of the Gospels where he does this. He's not forecasting actual wars, earthquakes, famines, or the downturn of the American economy. Did you get that? Let me set you free. Now, this is helpful because if you're at home reading the Bible like me, you're probably, where am, where am I in the Bible, right? Where's America, right? That's how we read. Jesus is just saying in very big, broad terms that these disciples would have, it would have clicked for them. Oh, he's talking like apocalypse, like the book of Daniel. They would have known that. Look, guys, the world is coming to an end. The falcon will lose the falconer. The center will not hold. That's what Jesus is saying. Yes, trouble is coming. So by the way, don't go home and start charting the earthquakes. Don't go researching the gold prices. Don't throw your iPhone away because it's the mark of the beast. Although it could be that, but not for the same reasons. <laughs> but you get my point. Jesus describing the future, he references trouble ahead and it's big and its scope is epic and it's very frightening and the disciples are like what these are the labor pains labor pains let's look at the life now the life that jesus promises go back to verse 7 there are there are a couple lines we didn't read verse 7 chapter 13 jesus says do not be, what's the word there? You read it? Do not be, verse 7. Do not be alarmed. Listen, if you just need one simple word today from the scriptures, from Jesus Christ, who owns heaven and earth, write this down. Do not be alarmed. Friends, if we could like pause right now and do a breathing exercise, I would do that with you. Let's breathe together. Jesus is leading us. Do not be alarmed. I feel like that's enough for today, right? He tells his disciples, do not be alarmed. This must take place. Like this hard stuff must take place. The end, but the end is still to come. The end is, he's saying, disciples, this chaos that you're going to experience that will come in human history is not the end of the story. Now, verse 8 there's more good news. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, all the labor pains. This is verse 8, the very bottom, but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the beginning of the birth pains. Now, it may not seem like much life at this point after all the scary apocalyptic imagery, but in these few words, Jesus Christ is offering humanity the possibility of living every single day without paralyzing fear and paralyzing anxiety, without alarm. This is but the beginning of the birth pains because what comes after, friends, what comes after the birth pains of labor? Life, a beautiful life. St. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter eight, and I'm using Eugene Peterson's paraphrase because it's so lovely. Paul uses the same language, labor to life, birth pains to life. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation, verse 22, chapter 8. The difficult times of pain throughout the world, they're simply birth pains. 
But it's not only around us. These birth pangs are in us. We feel them. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. And that's why waiting doesn't diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. From labor to life, do not be alarmed. The world is coming untethered. Do not be alarmed. These are birth pains. Do not be alarmed. Life is coming. Okay, you say, oh, I really want to live this way. Man, how do I do this? To be free of the anxiety and worry about the future I carry with me every day. To approach, can you imagine, approaching life every day like a mommy-to-be and all the craziness coming at you from all around the world at this point because we don't just get our news from Orlando. We get it from Africa and Russia and you know everywhere, right? So the chaos is coming at us. To be able to approach it like an expecting mommy, waiting, dreaming, imagining those little fingers and little toes, the little giggles that you know are in your future, that you're counting on. Yes, there is waiting, right? Yes, there is puking. (laughs) Yes, there is not sleeping as an expectant mommy. So I hear, yes, there is eating pickles and ice cream in the same bowl. Are you with me? But still, I, as the expectant mommy, I am waiting with joy for that new life that's coming. How do we get there from labor to life? It's only through the leadership of Jesus. Let, Jesus says to his disciples, let me be your leader through this labor. Let me lead you through the labor pains to the life. That's the key. Entrusting our past, present, future to Jesus, it changes the chaos that we experience into confidence, the pain into purpose, our human anxiety into God's assurance. It's the leadership of Jesus. He's our Lord. So look with me at verses five and six. Finally, we read this. Then Jesus began to say to them, verse 5, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. In other words, disciples, when these other leaders come and offer to lead you, just, just remember, you already have a leader. You don't need to go looking for someone else or something else to guide you through the labor pains, through the scary times. Let me be your midwife. That's what Jesus is saying. I will lead you through the birth pains of the craziness of human history. In me, in Jesus, you have the only leader you will ever need. So here's the question for us. To whom or to what do we look for leadership to get us through the labor pains? And by that I mean, what news source are you watching? What what social media feed is informing your view of the world? What political radio ranter are you engaged in? Because, because here's, here's, here's what I think. I think these things that we look to for leadership, these voices, these people, 
they really do offer us leadership, but what's so scary is it's not really true leadership. It gives us some sense as we're moving through the chaos of every day that we're in control when we're really not. It, it, they, they tell us, hey, let me tell you how to make sense of the falcon who's losing the falconer, of the world that's falling apart. I, I will explain it to you so that you can feel for just a few minutes safe. So, so you, you worry about the economy? Don't worry what your financial advisor who is leading you says, I will help you stay safe and secure with all the money that you could want, right? This is not the way. It's false security. It's all falling apart one day. Jesus says, let me be your leader. Who do you look to apart from Jesus to carry you through the labor to the life? I close with this story. I remember Daphne, when Daphne, our five-year-old, was born, and one of the midwives helping Mindy through labor was named Rhonda. Rhonda was incredible. She also helped deliver uh, Lucy a few years later. One of the things I particularly remember about that delivery with Rhonda was that there were times all through the night when Mindy would be working really hard at labor. I would also be working hard, trying not to faint and cheering her on, but then, let's not talk about me in this scenario. But it would, be, it would be just the two of us in the room. Rhonda, the midwife, was not there. That is to say, in the wisdom of Rhonda's long time experience as a midwife, she knew when to be close and to give instructions and encouragement to Mindy and when to leave for a few minutes, giving Mindy the chance to carry out this profound task of birth on her own. At first that night, in the moments when Rhonda wouldn't be there in the room with us, I remember thinking, man, where's the lady in charge here? Um, this is scary. Like, I, it's just me and Mindy, and neither of us have ever had a baby before. But Rhonda knew what she was doing, didn't she? She knew when to be close and when to be absent during the labor process so as to most effectively yield the new life of little baby Daphne. Friends, when it feels like the center cannot hold, and the falcon has lost sight of the falconer, it really, really, really matters who your midwife is, who is leading you through those labor pains. So today, our invitation from the gospel reading is to turn away from the leaders who might lead us astray by offering us pseudo-control, pseudo-security, and instead turn to Jesus, the only one adequate to that task. Only God himself has this whole crazy spinning globe in the palm of his hands. Amen.